Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. My name's Kate Goodwin and I'm the Head of Architecture here at the Royal Academy of Arts and it's my great pleasure to introduce and to chair tonight's discussion. This evening's event is part of a wider project that we're doing which is looking at mavericks and architecture that through a book written by Owen Hopkins who's here at the front and the architecture programme curator at the Academy and um, an installation designed by Scott Whitby Studio this project celebrates the architects who <coughs> defied convention and charted their own course from the 16th century to the present day. And this series, of, and it's also accompanied by a series of events, um, which considers different ideas around <coughs> the maverick. The first event in the series considered whether architecture actually really needs mavericks, and it was an interesting discussion, and I think raised some of the problematic things around architecture as well, uh, around mavericks, particularly the idea of the cult of the personality, the star architect that rise up, the individual. But I think one thing that really did come out of the discussion was the importance of the maverick spirit, which is what the book really does celebrate. Someone who goes out or test assumptions, um, won't accept status quo, might work outside of convention, um, and embrace a degree of intellectual and creative risk. But these ideas also, I think, provide a springboard for us to discuss some issues which are really relevant to the profession today, and I hope that's what we're going to do. Now, what is the future of the profession? What role does education play in this? What is the future of education? What are the opportunities available for young architects? How might they become more fruitful? Um, what is the role of the building industry and the role of the architect? And I guess a lot of the, these discussions in, is against a backdrop where we see of cuts to education, the increased fee structure, which is you know, reducing accessibility for to get into architecture. Students are obviously coming out with a rising student debt um, and, a, and a backdrop of, of a recession which, may or may not, which we may or may not be coming out of. Um, and we saw the establishment of the London School of Architecture very recently, which really provides a new funding model and also a sort of new <coughs> approach to pedagogy. Also the closing of the camps <coughs> or the selling off of their site to plug the big um, debt that the, that the London Met has now had. And you know, in, a, in a climate of, of rising austerity and a reliance upon private enterprise um, rather than the public, and public spend. And so hopefully we're going to be able to tackle, I think there's a lot of issues here to discuss. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Robert Mull, who is the first of our speakers. Um, he's an architect and educator, and until recently was the Dean of the SACAS Faculty of Art, Architecture and Design. Um, he's been the leader of the acclaimed free unit at the CAS, and also a champion of socially engaged design practice. So, Robert. Mavericks, both in education and practice, for as long as I can remember, the conversation in education, in practice, those who fund it and those who police it, has been divided between this rather comic idea of the role of the architect, being divided between the individual creative hero and the sort of third spear carrier in the back row of somebody else's play, be it education, the client, the employer, or education. This comic spat would be entertaining if it weren't so problematic and so divisive. I think the degree to which it's divisive is because it defeats the possibility of architectural culture and education developing common 
values and common principles. This lack of common values and principles is particularly important if we start to talk about maverickness, if such a word exists. <coughs> it renders the idea of the maverick completely unstable. The maverick must, by definition, be maverick in relation to some perceived sense of orthodoxy. If everyone is maverick, then being maverick is the orthodoxy. And like that scene in I, Spartacus, where everybody says, I am Spartacus, it relinquishes everybody from blame and everybody from responsibility. They are all rebellious. They are all mavericks. So being maverick is entirely dependent upon the context against which or in which one is asked to be maverick. If you don't understand the context, then you're in trouble. I'll give you two examples. Is the student who breaks the rules, extends the boundaries, in a school that overtly or more often covertly values this, a maverick or the ultimate conformist? Conversely, is that same student in the same institution who chooses and insists on acquiring conventional skills to guarantee their employability the maverick or the conformist. In practice, is the rebellious young practice working largely unpaid at the margins <coughs> of convention maverick, even if its ability to do so depends on their social capital and the economic security that guarantees? Or is the practice that quietly fulfills its obligations and earns a living maverick in a culture that values novelty? Or is it just plain dull? So if it's about context, and we're here to talk about education, we'd better understand the context in which education is operating before we can reliably talk about whether any educational model is or could be maverick. The issues in relation to education are now very familiar, and I'll just go through a list. Quite a harrowing list, but a list nonetheless. Fees, debt, the fear of debt. Five, four, three, two, one and the length of our courses, parts one, two, and three, and the role of validation, and prescription, and title, Europe, the privatization of higher education, and the total removal of public funding, the primacy of metrics, like the NSS and league tables, the death of widening participation and diversity, the green paper, growing elitism in education and the profession, the cost of delivery, studio culture, the unit system, sexism, and so on and so on. And of course, why do women still leave architecture some 10 years after it was highlighted as the most important challenge facing us? If this is the context, what are the current solutions and the trajectory they imply for the future of education? Again, I would say the list is now quite familiar. Shorter courses, more diverse, diverse routes to qualification, Earn and learn apprenticeships, projects-based learning, live projects, practice-based education, distance learning, federated and inter-institutional delivery, private providers, study in Europe, and so on. So to conclude, where does this leave us? A question. Like the rebellious student or the rebellious young practice mentioned earlier, are the inventive ideas being developed by the education community really inventive or maverick? Or are they covertly encouraged and incentivized by the educational and government forces they intend and proclaim they resist? 
making them and us complicit in the delivery, in delivering precisely the changes that will ultimately destroy education. Ultimately, is this inventive fragmentation of education just another symptom of the maverick habit born out of and embedded in the culture of architectural education, which prioritizes competition, individuality, exploitation, and mistrust, and defeats cooperation and collective action? Question one. Question two. And this is about the compliant student, or the dull practice that I mentioned earlier. Is the truly maverick or rebellious response to the current situation to attempt to retrieve common values and to act collectively for the greater good, and in doing so agree to fight together for architecture education to be properly <coughs> funded by society in recognition of its social value? STEAM, S-T-A-M, rather than STEM subjects, science, technology, architecture, engineering, and maths paid for and accessible to all. This, in turn, requires an architectural education that values cooperation, promotes consensus, delivers hard skills, and defeats self-interest and tribalism. I'm totally agnostic as to which one is the best one. But to my maverick panel members, which one should it be and why? Or are we just inevitably just going to continue in a slightly compromised and smudged version between them? Thank you, Robert. That was great. And next we've got Dr. Harriet Harris, the Senior Tutor in Interior Design and Architecture at the Royal College of Art and co-author of Radical Pedagogies, Architecture in the British Tradition. Harriet's work is very concerned with social strategy and participation, particularly in the built environment. And she has been recognised as one of just 60 women nationally for the BBC Expert Women Database Project. Harriet. So I'm going to just ask a question really, and it's really, as an educator, um, a chance for me to sort of question what schools are really doing to facilitate mavericks, um, whether they create or curate or actually curtail maverick enterprise. So looking at UK architectural education, my view is it's been quite static for the last 100 years. Um, we've justified this in some loose way as a commitment to tradition, um, a traditional body of knowledge, but in a way tradition is the architecture school equivalent of comfort eating. You do it when you're feeling insecure or you're not worth much. I'm sure there's been flashes of radicalism, but we only really shift in our seat when the practice world stumbles. Mostly, we only really like to hint at a responsive and relevant curriculum, so we might fund the odd arcazine dangle a live project or take some students to a war zone on a field trip but for the most part we run a business as usual um, business model and of course our traditional binge diet or tradition binge diet of choice goes back to the Parisian Academy de Beaux-Arts um, an institution as <coughs> curricula was entirely defined by mimicry and hierarchy with reams of students judged by their ability to imitate and not to innovate and it suits us, actually, schools of architecture, and it also suits a largely unimaginative practice world to keep peddling a curricula committed to graduating subservient mimics who can only prop up the practice as is, rather than teach young designers skills needed for future practice, such as innovation, entrepreneurship, and commercial enterprise. And we've got a lot of excuses about why we do this. We say it's because we follow a professional curriculum, but we've got more in common with Anne Rand's Fountainhead, with its celebration of ruthless individualism, than we have with the RIBA curricula's paternalism. 
We say it's because we have university standards, such as the need to offer student feedback, so transparent it practically tells students what an A looks like, and thereby removes any room for risk-taking, speculation and authentic innovation. And we focus on graduating employees, but not employers. Not students geared for, we graduate students geared for practice as is treadmill work, or not those with the confidence needed to graduate as directors of small enterprises and practices. Schools don't really take the lead in setting agendas for practice alternatives. Perhaps we're just simply too afraid to do this, and we're too afraid to consider what the alternative is. But we need to. Why? Firstly, the average qualification time in the UK is eight years. Eight whole years. And this learning experience will cost you around £100,000. Now, £100,000 is actually the same as the average deposit on a property in London. So it seems to me beyond irony that in tasking architecture students with designing buildings, they may never actually get to own the buildings they're designing. And of course, schools throw stones at practice instabilities. Yet for every 15 first years joining an architecture BA, only one will ever become an architect. So what are the other 14 doing? And if that isn't a broken business model, then I don't know what is. So whilst this discussion is about whether or not students can crack on with being more maverick and changing the world of architecture because we're too frightened to do so, let's be clear about what we're asking of them. Because to suggest that it's all about being really, really talented and that if you're really talented, you will thrive under these terribly adverse conditions of extreme hardship is to play into the hands of the neoliberalist agenda that monetised our education system to begin with. So really, what can schools do to create the conditions for the next generation of mavericks? Firstly, we need to stop thinking that architectural education exists in a political vacuum and instead assume a more active role in pushing back at policies that undermine our ability to nurture and support our fledglings and future pioneers. Secondly, we need to rethink what an architecture maverick really is um, in today's transient times. And we need to think beyond these um, people who are pioneer stylistic and formal flourishes, the architects, or even the hipster arts collectives cushioned by bank of mum and dad money. Third, we need to start pushing back at the standards-driven homogenisation culture operating within our higher education system that curtails an architecture school's ability to graduate the bohemian, the eccentric, the dissident entrepreneur of tomorrow. And fourth, our practices need to work on their hypersensitivity to economic turbulence, which is increasingly corroding an appetite for experimentation and risk-taking outside of using BIM keyboard shortcuts. As architecture critic Rainer Bannon once pointed out, schools of architecture operate like a kind of black box, relying upon an ambiguous and unspoken set of codes that keep us all in check. Some 25 years later, and here we are still struggling to think outside of that old black box, and it's not getting any easier for us to do this. In asking young architects to be more maverick, we issue them with an impossible brief to articulate a future that the rest of us are simply too conservative and too complicit or risk-averse to even attempt. Thank you. And now we'll go straight over to Will Hunter. He studied architecture at the Bartlett and uh, then at the Royal College of Art and for five years was at the Architectural Review before standing down as executive editor to start up the London School of Architecture. So, Will. Thank you. Um, when we think of mavericks, we tend to think of lone individuals, an independent-minded person, as the dictionary puts it. Indeed, it can be rewarding to depict the history of architecture, as the Royal Academy has done, as a story of individuals who come along and upset the apple carts. 
It chimes with Thomas Carlyle's 19th century view that the history of the world is but the biography of great men. No doubt Carlyle would now include women too, certainly the maverick architect of Joris Dame Zaha. But when you look at calamities like the walkie-talkie, he wouldn't feel sick about the role of mavericks today. Architecture's star system is studded with these fading rock stars. They started out as genuine explorers, but success soon freezes them into a signature style. Or, as William Gerald Curtis puts it, the radicals all became conservatives, putting their flamboyant gestures and fractured shards in the service of the unfettered forces of the market. Freedom or slavery, he asks. But I think it's all changing. As Malcolm Gladwell said, the 20th century was about lone geniuses, but the 21st century is about smart people working together. We're definitely seeing that in architecture. Today's mavericks aren't Howard Rourke's, but collectives like Assemble and Zero Zero. Tellingly, both their names hide rather than celebrate individual identities. Also tellingly, both have created opportunities for themselves rather than waiting for the patron to ring. Assemble famously self-initiated their first project, building a temporary cinema in a petrol station, while Zero Zero developed a wiki house, an open source building system. Instead of fetishizing form, both intrigued for how they're rethinking the process of design rather than its appearance. I'd say both are more interested in ethics rather than aesthetics. Sales pitch starts. Um, we opened the London School of Architecture last October to offer an education geared towards these new models. We're an independent school for the independent-minded. We offer a cost-neutral two-year diploma. We don't own buildings. We use the city as our campus. The institution has no defined edge. We remain poorest of the world beyond it. Like Peter Buchanan, we see architecture as the nexus of all disciplines, as fundamental as language. But, like Richard Sennett, we agree that it isn't really about being multidisciplinary, but using the city as the place that unites complex forms of knowledge. That's why all our projects are in London. We want our architecture to be connected, <coughs> relevant, and collaborative. Students work part-time in placements, creating a continual feedback loop between the school and practice. They're housed in one of five design think tanks, where they co-create projective research-led design. We see the architect as someone who can synthesize complexity to make propositions. As an institution, we want to explore the spatial consequences of how the world's changing in the 21st century, from climate change and fragmenting cities to emerging networks, lifestyles, and rituals. Mavericks, I think, remain hugely important, perhaps now more than ever. It's imperative that they expand the territory of the discipline and connect it to wider culture. They must be entrepreneurial, intrepid, and disruptive. And we hope that our school provides a fertile new space for these mavericks to grow. And finally, we have Alex Scott Whitby, who studied architecture at Newcastle before moving out of architecture, actually, like, as, um, as Harriet said, into advertising and filmmaking, before returning, being lured back by Robert's Free Unit. Um, and out of, out of that process of two years at the Free Unit, he set up his own practice on the back of it, which gave the projects that has started what is now a very successful practice. And he also has taught and teaches at, as head of admissions of architecture at UEL and is also now teaching at the Architectural Association. Wow, we have to come after those three polemics. And I think we've spent a lot of time in this practice looking at what is a maverick and what is a maverick <coughs> architect. What's helping Owen and Kate create this exhibition. Um, so maybe I'm not going to talk too much about mavericks, and I'm still not sure what I believe is important in the word maverick. Maybe I said earlier, and I was told this was old advertising 
kind of crap, but in a way isn't an architect, isn't a maverick in any profession, someone who kind of zigs when others zag. And maybe there's this kind of world of digging and zagging that goes on on purpose. And maybe that's some sort of issue as Robert was putting forward. A few, a few weeks ago at the AA, we had a, our open week. And this year, the students decided rather maverickly, almost, that they wanted to put the unit masters on trial rather than themselves. Um, as one of my esteemed colleagues put it, who was a maverick educator in the past, this is what education is becoming. It's not about a thirst for furthering one, one's knowledge. It's about edutainment. In the tutor's crits, a student stood up and started and stated that he thought that he had not been taught anything in his entire five years at the AA. He'd been taught an incredible array of skills, but had not really been taught how to be an architect. Our response as tutors was somewhere between pride and horror. <laughs> and, and I think it was until we remembered that our duty as tutors is not about creating the next generation of architects. It's actually about nurturing talented, interested, and eager minds. They are not always young, by the way. To be, and this is about them being the best that they can, can be in whatever future career path they decide to take. <clears throat> Think, as Harriet said, the one in 15 rule. Of those 14 other peoples, I disagree with you. I think that's the fundamental point of architecture education. I think the reason why it's important <coughs> that we have architecture as a degree course and that we, have, that we can fight for it to become part of STEAM is because those 14 other people go on to do incredible, amazing things. And there's a real problem with this idea that we all need to become architects at the end of it. It's this funnel. And one of the things I reacted against when I was studying architecture in my first degree at Newcastle, which was a very conservative, we're going to teach you how to be an architect, was that we took an these amazing groups of incredible students and turned them into these oven-ready part ones who would go work in boring practices in London and the Midlands and all over the place in Scotland and just kind of become cad monkeys of irrelevance and we could make a good model <laughs> here and there. And I kind of feel that it's a real issue because... Aren't we here to teach people how to think better? Like, let's just take a few examples of some of that one in 14. Ice Cube, studied architecture. <laughs> Rapper, amazing. Uh, Seal, studied architecture. You can see by his songs, yeah? Uh, let's... Say again? Mark Jacobs. Mark Jacobs, yeah. Um, the guy who designed the inside of the Apple Watch and all the technology behind the Apple Watch actually happens to be David Chipperfield's son. And he left um, the Bartlett after being absolutely vilified because he was David Chipperfield's son at the Bartlett. Like, why do you go to the Bartlett if you're David Chipperfield's son? Come on. Like, you know, uh, and you know, decides to go off into the world of tech. And it's, an, and it's amazing because we teach people to think really creatively and to do things in a, kind of, in a way that's super different. It's kind of this idea that it's the fundamental problem with architectural education at the moment. Yeah? It's this idea that our duty of care as educators is to the profession and not, firstly, to our students, yeah? to, not, to nurture them to be the best that they can be, and then to society to produce talented, pro proactive agents of change who think creatively and, importantly, spatially about the big problems that are in the world out there. And then, finally, down a long list of our duty of care, it's to the profession. Really, should we actually care about creating oven-ready graduates that turn up on day one of their employment perfectly BIM-capable to become thoughtless CAD monkeys 
who have no ability to think and come up with or even question <laughs> the creative solutions on their own. I think we find that in the office. That I hope in our studio and with the people I've taught that we, make, we teach people to think and question the brief and we have arguments and that's good. Like, How can you design a good building without rigorously discussing and arguing about what is best for that project? I don't understand how you can do it. I'm going to Harriet commented, the actual numbers for the ROBA, 3,000 students of architecture register on a part one course. 1,800 then go on to register on a part two course. And only 600 applicants apply each year to do part three. Some say this is disastrous, as you could probably guess. I say it's fantastic. Um, I think it's a celebration of our architectural educational system and a clarion call to those schools that feel that graduate employability in the field of architecture is their sole KPI. And I say this as I say from experience from leaving and ending up in Robert's Free Unit where he made me question some of these things. I want to finally... I claim no responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's fair. <laughs> but I think it's really interesting, this duty of care. And I think this world that we're in right now reminds me a bit of the noughties, of the 2007s and 2008s. We're in this world of everyone doing things too quickly. Projects coming into the office and having to do it in six weeks. This word quick is super dangerous in architecture. <coughs> you have big practices who are growing exponentially and not, still not caring about the work that they're doing and they're putting out crap at times. I'm not going to name names. We're doing a project in Victoria at the moment where we're, we're, it's David versus Goliath. We have a client who decided to put us up against one of the most established residential practices in, Lon in London versus us, this tiny practice who's never done a multi-unit residential building. And the client, what we saw from the other practice was a sloppy, badly thought out design for a really important place. And this client was probably actually the only maverick I want to speak about tonight. He was the guy who actually decided that a practice who was untested in that market should be given the opportunity to have a go at making that building. And it's really interesting, that idea of care and caring for what we do in architecture now. And I worry that we're in this, we're teetering on the brink of a world of thoughtless architecture. And we see it on our skylines. We see it in our cities all the time. I'm going to end after just, I went off script, as you could probably tell. Um, I'm going to end with this word, with some words. It's kind of think, and this word think different. And it was a campaign that happened in the 80s. Um, maybe this is what's important. And it was interesting, it wasn't think differently. They were really careful about this idea of think different. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. But the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Thank you.
Thank you. Can I, maybe we can start with a, um, in some ways a very basic question, but, but thinking about the relationship between architectural education and the profession, because I think it's something that everyone has touched upon from slightly different angles. And just interrogate it a little bit more as, as to whether the education serves the profession, does it shape the profession, what's the potential of it? And if I can ask you each to sort of address that a little, go and interrogate it a little bit more as to how you're thinking about both sides of it, actually, so it's not just education, but actually thinking about the condition of the profession. I'm uncomfortable with this, this separation that we make between education mm. and profession. It seems, it seems a convenience to mask a lot of, of, of weaknesses. Um, education and practice are woven together, not just in formal ways, such as the way in which Will is doing it, but architects teach, teachers practice, educational institutions practice, practices are educational institutions. So I think it, it's something which we really need to deal with. It's not a helpful distinction and it's a distinction which actually allows many disgraceful activities to escape scrutiny. I mean, I, um, the, uh, the heads of schools produced this graph that had um, sort of student fees and the, the 100 grand of student fees and then over 30 years the, the interest debt repayments on them showing that most architects when the fees go up to 9 grand a year for each year um, won't ever pay off their tuition fee debt and part of the problem yeah. is not just the high fees but it's the low salary of architects so I think what we're kind of interested in is not that architectural education is broken but actually um, rethinking the profession and saying what value do architects have and what is it we can contribute to the world and I think that part of the rethinking of that profession is We've got like 45 practices in London collaborating on projects, and that they um, they're actually really interested in coming and being part of a school where they can talk to each other and debate issues and provide this platform, which I think is quite a new thing. I think there's that um, practices collaborating with each other is even five years ago I can't imagine happening. I think it's sort of maybe post crash, there's less elbows out, and people are a bit more willing to think that the discourse of architecture actually needs everyone to be thinking about it and debating it. So I think. Like Robert was saying, it's not a helpful division. Trying to bring people together, students and practices, to just think about what the discipline's doing and the profession is kind of super critical. But I think it's interesting. I think the, I think that question of being too close, as in being too close for comfort, to to make it feel like you're putting a student under the pressure to go straight into practice, is got to be something which is. It's fundamentally unhelpful in some ways. I, I, as as a teacher, you, you employ great students. We in the practice, we. I, but you don't want you know this idea of not kind of of broadening the mind. And I think this problem with certain ways of teaching architecture now is that it's and this the danger of actually immature leadership in schools of architecture is that the first thing to do is to solve the ROBAs you know, educational criteria, and by doing that you have to tick off all these boxes and you've got to say, right, everyone's got to be able to do a detail, and everyone's got to be able to use BIM, and everyone's got to be able to do certain pieces, and I, and I, think, I think that's the problem. I think maybe it's maturity in the leadership of schools. I think one of the amazing things about the AA is actually a school that gives you as a tutor the freedom to, just, to you know, to teach students in the in open and kind of, in, you know, in an interesting way. Yeah, I mean, I think that education and practice obviously need, could be 
more intimately linked. But I do think that education's role is actually to provide a critical space. It's to provide a reflective space and a contextual space for what goes on in industry. Historically, higher education has always been struggling to do two things. One, to provide a brief for industry, because actually that's where a lot of higher education comes from, certainly within the, you know, the German historical model of academia, because they wanted to know what do we build, what do we make, what's the next industrial opportunity. But then we got kind of confused about whether we were just providing employees for those industries rather than the brief to those industries. So we sort of stuck really understanding what our role is in relation to setting practice ambitions or just simply responding to them as well. I think also there's a huge problem in education generally with um, everything being metric driven now that unless you can measure it, it has no value. So the, 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 the government's having introduced the research framework and realising that was complicated and bureaucratic and deadening has said, as a balance to that, we're going to introduce the teaching excellence framework, which is going to be bureaucratic and deadening. And, <laughs> but that will balance the two things out by making them both kind of leaden. And I think that's really um, going to be problematic across all, all disciplines. <coughs> the, the things they measure, they acknowledge themselves, don't actually measure excellence in teaching. So it's like, well, why are you doing it? It's about whether people show up and... They might measure the processes, but they don't really measure the outcomes or what, what really it means to transform your life through education, because that isn't that easily measured. I think it's, um, if, if people are kept captive for five years full-time and two years part-time in order to win the title of architect, it would seem logical to me that within that five-year period we could or we are capable of teaching people to have all of the skills necessary and all of the bravery necessary to be instrumental in, you know, in society. I do think that, again, this, this sense that we're either doing this or we're either doing that, we're either critical or we're either skilled, is, is negligent. We can do both, we should do both. Because if you teach bravery without the skills to apply that bravery, you leave the person or the student compromised. If you teach skills without the bravery to apply it, you leave that student compromised and ineffective. £10,000, £100,000, seven years, should bloody well be able to do it. <laughs> and also, does it come down to, I mean, we touched upon this before, there seems to be a lot of anxiety about the profession itself, the role of the architect. It's a conversation that seems to quite come up often. You know, architects' views or ambitions are often sidelined in a, in a building project once economics come in. Is there a problem that architects, that, that sort of lack of confidence in the profession that is also part of the lack of confidence or how we, how education is driven or shaped? And what might the relationship between those two be? I don't know. <laughs> struggling with that one. I mean, I think that, um, I think that when students leave architectural education and they actually enter the, the idea of the construction, it is disempowering if they can't really converse with um, the people who are on site or... I think in terms of, uh, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I think in terms of, you know, 50 years ago, let's say in modernism where there might be five materials, now there's like 5,000. I think architects can't know everything now. We have to be generalists. We have to be able to talk to lots of different people. Yeah. But what we do have is kind of spatial awareness and spatial intelligence, and we're the only people who have that. So I think our role within the centre of all these different people is actually more critical now than it's ever been, but that we need to kind of understand that we, we need to pull in all the different expertise and offer some leadership. Well, yeah, maybe, but I think that actually, you know, this whole, coming back to your point about the other 14 students who don't bother qualifying as an official CAD architect, 
Um, I think we should lay claim to these people. I think we should still call them architects and take credit for them, actually, and take credit for the education system that was so rigorous and epistemologically diverse. They traversed every single discipline and experience from geography, history, you know, politics, um, art, you name it. It's all in there. It's an incredibly rich undergraduate program. And yet, off they go, feeling that they've been betrayed by ours as an educational experience, rather than feeling honoured members who are going out, as you describe it, to innovate in other industries and be maverick um, in banking or maverick in teaching or whatever it is, and having these diverse, wonderful careers. And we don't lay claim to that, and we should. Because that's our intellectual property, that's our, the brilliance of our education system being manifested and in a way commercially and also you know, personally exploited by other industries who congratulate themselves for recruiting such genii with it never being understood that that's our legacy, that's our educational legacy to the economy. It, it's really because like my first day, it's interesting the, 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 the salary thing. So in my first, my first job in advertising, <coughs> I got paid the minimum wage. But and it was I was on the minimum wage, so I was on less than I would be if I was on a part, as a part one. But if I was good at it, my next pay rise I got told was fifty percent, and my pay rise is every kind of time I got good, I did something well or did got was fifty percent again and again and again. And it was like, this, but it was, and it was, no, it was it. And, but it was, and it's interesting because actually, it there's something, and what was we walked into this room and. I, I got this job, and the first thing they said to us was, um, congratulations, you three have made it into this ad agency, and it was an ad agency called Abbott Mead Vickers, and we made the Guinness adverts and the Sainsbury's adverts and stuff like this, and they said, you're, you're one in a thousand to get this job. And I, on my first day, I felt really good about that. And by the end of my first week, I realised what they were actually saying was there were 999 of you behind you, so if you don't do the job properly, if you don't stay into a right lane, <coughs> out you go, and we'll bring in the next one. And I, I, don't, I think it's kind of, I think you're right, I think that, but what kept me there, and what for the, I was there for like two years, was that the way that we were trained in architecture school was put me on such a, you know, it's put me so much above the kind of average, the English grad from Oxford. And I could stand up in front of the board. I didn't go to pieces in front of the board. On the first day, I had to do a pitch to them, or I had to stand up against peers. And I realised that the brutality of what of architecture <laughs> school had actually enabled me to, you know, to get on in life a bit better. And maybe that's part of it. Like, you know, maybe we just need to. Maybe, and maybe everyone's being a bit nice now. Yeah. And it's like, you know, again, we're not allowed to. We have to call our students customers, as yeah. you were saying. And yeah, this yeah. idea that, you know. Actually, maybe we should just be tougher. And, you know, I think you can be nice to people. You, know. you weren't always nice to me. <laughs> you should have been tougher, eh? Uh, <laughs> but it's there's still time. <laughs> but your point earlier, I mean, the whole thing about practice and what they kind of give schools the impression about practice culture really being like, they're so obsessed, or at least certainly the validation boards and the and professional institutions are so obsessed with this protectionist approach to architecture. Mm. Mm. It is this, the bandwidth is this big. There's never any sense of conquest or ambition or changing shape along with society's needs. You know, the iPhone only existed, didn't exist 20 years ago. And there's a whole, these market opportunities are burgeoning out there. And for some reason, we're so busy worrying about our tiny island off the rock of Gibraltar. We're not actually seeing that we could be out there taking up space, expanding the remit of architecture and being much more open and inclusive to the opportunities that exist. 
the profession has become very defensive rather than actually embracing some of these things and yeah. potentially I education. But I don't think the profession knows what it is. I mean, that's like the elephant in the room is I don't think we really know completely what we're doing. <laughs> and I say that for myself as well, but, you know, maybe that's, but maybe that's really interesting. Maybe that's actually what makes it a really interesting time to be in that profession, is actually we get to reinvent it. I just think all professions are sort of 19th century inventions that have less yeah. and less relevance to the 21st century and are, are all challenged and pretty much finished this idea of the kind of specialist to... Oh, I don't know, I'd quite like to be operated on by a doctor. <laughs> yeah, but there's quite a lot of... If you get to the GP, don't you? You'd be better Googling it half the time. I have to say, I have no faith in doctors. No, it all just leads to meningitis if you Google it, though, doesn't it? Oh, he's ever good. Yeah, exactly. Then you said about bracing greater ambiguity too. I mean, some of the work you've done is thinking about ambiguity and that we aren't able to operate in a space where we don't know exactly what the outcomes are and you, can't, you need to qualify, quantify things and we need to be able to state value within education, within architecture, <coughs> justifying fees and the whole way in which architects present themselves has, is about trying to justify existence quite often, um, which seems overlate, you know, the, the, and the education system is a product of that. And so how, how might both potentially both things need to be reformed at once or the, be pushed. The, I mean, I've been very much involved in what might constitute the edges of architectural education and, and practice. I suppose if I, if I have a worry about what the consequence of that is, it, it's as if the, the boundaries of what constitutes architectural practice have expanded. They're like ripples. Mm. But the effect of that is to actually leave a hole in the centre. And that hole in the centre, that void in the centre, the expansion of what constitutes architectural practice and education is, has been damaging. Because it is in that centre, which I would say is the capacity of architect architectural education, architecture, to deal with tough social issues, issues of depressing, mundane problems, the relationship between society and the artefacts of the built environment. It is in that centre that we have relinquished responsibility. And that's shameful. That's negligent. That's relinquishing our duty of care. We have left the centre empty. And I don't think retrieving the centre is simply a matter, or can be characterised as being about skills or about the professional bodies. It's much harder than that. It's about reconnecting our activities to ethic, the ethical dimension of practice. <coughs> and I suppose rediscovering the balance of architecture as an aesthetic and social art. And that centre is very empty at the moment. There's other people rummaging around in it <coughs> ineffectively. But we should be in that central space. And if we were in that central space, there would be a better argument for government and the rest of society to fund our education. Anthony Gormley said something really interesting. And if you, anyone stayed up late enough to watch David Chipperfield just kind of imagine, which is one of those another nasty, tame examples of what was you know, the portrayal of architecture on the BBC. Um, and I, he said, but the one thing he did say, which is kind of interesting, was that David is a real doctor of space. And I think there is something about this idea, and I think it's, it's not the great term yet, but this, you were saying, I want to be operated on, on by a doctor. And I do think, in a strange way, this world of the, that training of being a doctor of space is kind of interesting, you know, from, I know it's, you cringe, it's a gruesome term, but, but, but I think it, but it comes on, you can talk about it at the level of a house extension, 
in some ways to mm. a client, to someone. Like I'm finding I'm out going out to talk in, to school kids about wanting to study, people, getting people to study architecture at the moment. Mm. And they're all going, oh, I don't want to, you know, you just draw buildings, don't you? And it takes like seven years. And you're like, yes. <laughs> but then you tell them, then you tell them that you, if you study architecture, you don't have to be an architect. And you could be a rapper, or you could be a rock star, or you could be some of these other things. And actually, then they go, oh, that kind of gives me a release. And then it's down to the, then it's down to the educators to convince them and empower the, these, really, these students who, want to, who are studying architecture to carry on with it, or to not, and to just go out and become the maverick clients of, our, of the future, the people who are going to commission the architects to do great buildings. A lot of these, the 14 out of the 15, do become our clients, and they become the people who commission, who give FAT their first commission, give Zaha their first commission, give people the opportunity to do something different. At a certain point, though, it would be nice if our education produced people who can design buildings. <laughs> I think, because who else is going to do it? The, the profession is there to do that in some way, isn't but it? Where, but what is this profession? I mean, who is going... I mean, well, I, I don't know. I, I think at a certain point, architectural... I think people should be able to design a space, handle space. Because it, uh, if they can't, it does erode a confidence in the profession, particularly with the public. As soon as people come up and say, well, that building doesn't work for some reason, <laughs> it does erode a sort of confidence. I mean, that should be, in some ways, a sort of basic level. As you say, that sort of, you should be able to deliver a building and then it's what you do above and beyond that that starts to be exciting. Not, yeah, I mean, not uncritically, no. but mm -hmm. in some no. ways be able to understand the handling of space and make propositions that have some relevance to the world. And I don't think any school of those, not, I, don't, I think any, every school in the country teaches students to do that at a certain level, to a certain ability. And I think there are certain schools that teach, mean that you can go out and, uh, you know, I look at some, some principles or partners and practices in the room, and I know that I'm probably, you know, looking at Nick in the, in the corner there. But, you know, actually they, we, they know the schools they want to employ people from. You know, it's no, no wonder that Bath this does so well on you know, its graduate employment. Mm. And it's great, and, and they've got it really well because they've got this ability to train people to think differently and be, you know, and spatially and, you know, question briefs. But I think it is, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm, I think, yeah, of course it's important. You sound a bit like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> can I, well, can I ask you, because you're in an interesting stage, you just set up a new school. Yeah. Um, the students haven't yet come to this bit where they're actually going in to practice as, as the next bit. How do you no, think... they are, yeah. Uh, yeah they but really no, but they haven't come out there they're practicing at the moment. They're, they're right, not out yeah. the other side. Um, and I wonder how, you know, how are you thinking about your model and evolving the model in relationship to seeing what have being informed by what happens with these new group of students who are having quite a different experience? Will that start to reinform your model? Um, you know, how are you thinking about the future? I mean, we're very, yeah, quite a lot of them are here. We're very <laughs> against feedback and change. <laughs> We've got the model set. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I think what we want is... Um, what we try to set up is a kind of armature where the culture gets made afresh mm. each year mm. and, that you know, there's a kind of richness and you, we kind of learn from it and there's institutional memory. But that really, it's, a, it's a new people coming in. There's, there, there isn't a kind of unit system where people stay for, you know, a long time and it becomes a sort of... Um, fetish of certain ideologies of working. We're trying to be much more porous. So I think the, there is kind of a lot of opportunity to, to, to remake it. Mm. And to be informed by the I mean, profession. Um, disagree. 
One, one final thing we haven't really touched upon is the relationship is the, co the role of the client and um, and also then the possibility for young architects you know how, how there's a lot of people who come out they don't necessarily want to go into a big practice what are what what are the opportunities for them um, is there something they can do think where do they take their skills what do they do with their skills I think it depends how you see this porosity that will speaks about it's, it's not just formalised in terms of educational structures. Certainly by the time people are part two, most of them are working simultaneously to being educated. They've had typically two years out. They're often running businesses, they're running studios, they're doing all sorts of things. So I think we have to make a distinction between the first degree in architecture, and we can argue endlessly whether it should be so long and whether there should be two degrees and so. The first degree absolutely <coughs> responds to the idea that it trains people to do all sorts of other things. But certainly by the time you get to part two and the second degree, then I think it really is something that already should become the first stage of practice rather than the last stage of education. Mm. Certainly in the way we teach, we're trying to blur that boundary such that people, by the time they're in their fifth year, are beginning already to start practicing and engaging with clients and real situations, making things happen, such that that's a traumatic moment this, uh, this singularity of whether you go into an office or you do this just disappears. And that sense of the entrepreneur, the sense of somebody who can operate and be effective, that's what education is about. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.